This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Hi, my name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. And Hi, good evening, Germ, and thanks very much for you know hosting me on your program you, you are very hated by the media which is obviously a great start hated uh, might be a strong word i don't know I, I know a few journalists um you know that i'm friends with but maybe they won't admit to it in public um and at one time i used to write letters to the business day and, and they published just about every every letter and then they suddenly stopped so i gave up on the business day um, although, I mean, the Bielt has sort of refused to publish anything by me for at least 10 or 15 years. Um, so I, I think, yeah, and, and the people at Aris here, they, they also seem to... I once saw a very acrimonious email written by um, Anita Fisser where she didn't want to have anything to do with my being on the program and so on. So I think in that respect, you might be correct. But I think the mm. one of the things that I'm very conscious of is that y you've heard of the Overton window. Yes. Now, in maybe for the viewers, if they don't, they haven't heard that term before. It was mm -hmm. a, he was an American. Overton was an American political scientist, and he came up with this idea that in any given country or in any given political context. Um, you know, there's a set of ideas that are acceptable in the mainstream, and that's the Overton window, and and it could differ from one country to the next. For example, you know, if if you were in Cambodia in the late 70s, with an extreme left general genocidal regime like that of Pol Pot, you know, the mainstream would be mm. extreme left genocidal and then yeah. if you're just slightly liberal if you sort of just the liberal you would be considered uh, to be a fascist yeah. or a, an extreme right yeah. individual now i think in south africa you know the overton window has also shift markedly to the left over the last 10 or 20 years or even since the anc came to power so something that in it say for example in in europe or in Poland, mm. you know, at, at the moment, I, I think I would be sort of to the center or even, you know, left of the center, <laughs> politically speaking, because the Overton window in Poland is fairly to the right. But in South Africa, you know, we, we're going through an extremely leftist period in our history uh, where, say, in the 70s, the Communist Party was a completely marginal underground movement. Mm. And now it's it's almost yeah it's part of the ruling alliance. So yeah. um, and you've got somebody like Malema, yeah, and he's almost in the Pol Pot category, uh, you know, threatening to kill whites, uh, but perhaps not yet. And and he's mainstream, you know, he gets a lot of mainstream media attention and interviews, and he's in parliament and and so on. Yeah. So uh, you can see from that that our Overton window has really shifted to the far left. Yeah. You know, I wrote a little novel and then a, um, a book of poetry that was published mm. by a bookshop owner in Bromfontein in Johannesburg. Actually, incidentally, I went to see about a year ago. He now lives in the Netherlands, well, in Friesland, in Leeuwarden, which is 
kind of the capital of Friesland and um, and yeah and we had uh, quite an interesting chat he's of course really elderly now and he was complaining that he's he's still getting a rand based pension over there and that you know sure. the, the rand has lost so much of its value um, and he published my book of poetry that was sort of banned within a week for possession which was at that time you know an extreme form of censorship when somebody something got banned for possession but but what was in it that that made it so taboo book of satirical poetry and it contained a few swear words and so on you know by by today's standards it would be considered uh, very mild in fact Uh, Mm. but um you know in those days um it, it offended some conservative people um, back then uh, you know there, there was one gentleman who was actually a scientist um, he he had a whole group of people together who wanted to and they, and they had an organized system of laying complaints with a censor board so that they would ban certain books and so on mm. and I think I think some of them also were involved in, in the process of getting my book banned but I, I never really oh yes and, and i was actually also prosecuted later for another little magazine that we did so in actual fact in those days i was the only person ever to have been prosecuted in court for anything that i'd written and all of these other uh, more mainstream authors mm. who presented themselves in the you know especially in the foreign media as martyrs in south africa you know, people like Andre Brink and Nadine Gordimer and so on. In, in fact, they, they were never prosecuted for anything in, in South Africa. In fact, Andre Brink, while he was claiming to be a Samish.author author in South Africa, he was the main book reviewer in the Rapport newspaper, you know, which had the, sure. large, the newspaper with the largest circulation in Afrikaans. So, you know, you don't, in the Soviet Union, if you were a Samish.author, author you wouldn't be the main book reviewer in the Pravda by any stretch of mm. the imagination you know you would just be completely ignored or not even being able to publish anything because I think in the Soviet Union you had to be a member of the Soviet Writers Union or something in order to be publishable and yes. if they kind of, um, you know excluded you or kicked you out you were completely voiceless and you would never be able to publish anything. So, you know, uh, and and I think that's a paradox that a lot of these so-called martyrs from mm. way back then, um, I mean, they, they were just pseudo-martyrs in, in that they had, a, they really had a very cozy relationship even way back then with the National Party and the mainstream media. Yeah. And just when they went overseas, they would present themselves as, you know, as these poor, downtrodden and censored authors uh, in South Africa. And I think Nadine Gordimer or somebody, um, I mean, she had a, uh, one of her books was sort of banned for a year and then on appeal it was unbanned again. But, but for years she went on about that and how terrible it was and how much she suffered as a result of that. But in, in fact, it, uh, in a way, the, the kind of censorship that we've got now is almost more insidious because back then there, there was no self-censorship. You know, people expressed what they felt or what they thought and sometimes the authorities would then 
put on the brakes and so on. But mm-hmm. now there's a sort of a self-censorship in that people are, are, are afraid of voicing certain opinions because otherwise yes. they would um, they would yeah, they, they would be vilified or they would lose their jobs and all the social justice warriors would wage mm-hmm. these campaigns against them. And I think a, a friend of mine made a very good point um, not so long ago to me where he said that, you know, if you look at the United States, for example, they've still got the First Amendment and all of that. You can still use the N-word or even the K-word in the USA and you probably won't be prosecuted. But unlike Vicky Momberg, for example, um, but the major corporations are now uh, exercising the censorship. People like Google and Facebook and Twitter and so on. And you know, if it's the state doing it, there are clear mechanisms for you to appeal against it. You know, even under the National Party government, you could mm. lodge an appeal. You could go to court, a- as happened, for example. Um, you know, quite a major literary novel in Afrikaans, Magersfontein by Etienne Leroux. Th- that was prohibited also for about a year or so, but it went... Uh, on appeal and I think there was also a court case about it and it was then eventually unbanned so you know you're still part of the there's a, of the rule of law and there's a legal process you can follow whereas if one of these corporations like um, Google or Facebook or Twitter if they actually censor you mm. there's no clear process you know uh, you, you can't do much about it I mean you can supposedly lodge an appeal with them but it who knows who's going to look at it. It might be some underpaid person in the Philippines who, who gets thousands of these things and they just kind of tick a box there and they just exclude you from Twitter yeah. or Facebook. Yeah. So I think what we're living through now is in a way, yes, more insidious than how things were back then. Is self-determination or secession? I would say so, although I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that you know we we only we can only lay claim to some tiny bit of the country i I think we we have to um also if if we had to become independent you know have some of the urban areas that we've developed over many years and places like pretoria or bluefontaine or western cape where we've um settled for centuries um but yes, I, I was thinking the other day about all the things that were wrong with South Africa and I think, and, and why democracy has also failed here. And I think one of the reasons is that um, we have too much diversity in South Africa. I mean, a lot of people in the US now are saying um, diversity is not a strength. That's one of the mm. kind of popular slogans these days. Uh you know, from the left, people were saying that diversity is a strength. Yes, but it, correct. In fact, it's not. Uh, it's just another way of saying, sorry, I'm interrupting, but it's another way yes. of saying multiculturalism. Um, yeah, would you agree with that? Exactly. Well, Mrs. Merkel at one point mm. also said that multiculturalism had been a, fa- had been a failure. Uh, but after that, she seems to have changed her mind somewhat. But yes, diversity is not a strength. And, and in South Africa, we, this society is just too diverse to handle all of it um, you know we've got uh, linguistic cultural differences ethnic 
and racial differences, ideological differences. Um, you know, you've got some fairly conservative religious mm. people in South Africa, and then you've got these extreme leftists and um, also, you know, people who are propagating all of this gender type yes. of stuff that you get in the US and Canada. So, so you can't, in one society, you cannot accommodate that level of diversity and, um, you know, and, and potential conflict. Um, and, and there's no common, we, we have, I mean, unlike, I mean, now with the Springbok rugby team having won the World mm. Cup, people are saying we are better together and things like that. But, but there is no real together. Um, we, we don't have a common value system or even a common outlook on, on life. So, so I think the, the answer there is, is a, something like self-determination or a cantonal system like they've got in Switzerland. Or, or in South, know, is it Union. South, I mean, South Tyrol, is, I think, also? Yes. And, I mean, Catalonia is now mm. agitating for independence from Spain. But, in fact, they already enjoy a huge amount of autonomy mm. you know, places like can catalonia or yeah. flanders in belgium or even um, brexit yeah and and now we've got even got brexit of mm. course where where the british could no longer stand um even the the mild forms of sort of centralized control exercised by brussels and and mm. they are saying no to that and they want out of it they voted for Brexit and they are now supposed to be cutting their ties with the EU. So I think it's only natural that if you also look at our history, where we've been, you know, ever since the days of the Great Trek, we've been um, very much striving for independence and for controlling our own affairs even even from people who are part of my ancestry <laughs> the, yes. the, the british yes exactly um so you know and we've so it's not about it's not about skin color actually because i mean no, you and no, i are the same skin color about, yeah it's, you know and self-determination you know one could talk a lot about about mm. self-determination but it's a concept that goes right back to the European Enlightenment and I think mm. it was first coined by Immanuel Kant where he, he spoke about the self-determination of the individual that the individual should have the right to live his life as he saw fit and and then from there it was applied to nations and ethnic groups mm. and in the 19th century especially and even the early 20th century um, and after the, the f you know the um, the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, self determination in Europe became a big thing, and and you had all those little nations like the Baltic states, yeah, and well Yugoslavia you know, too, yeah Yugoslavia fell apart. In actual fact, um, the United States, I would argue, um, is is that as well. Yes, it's also becoming such a divided society. But I mean, it was it was a breakaway from from the British. Sorry for interrupting, but it was the breakaway from the British. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the mm. early history of the United States was a classic case of self determination. They wanted mm. to rule themselves um, and no longer be under the reign of the British king. Mm. 
under the rule of the British king. So that's why they, you know, they, they seceded in 1776. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, so... I think I, I've said it before somewhere, but, you know, we we are sort of out of sync with world history because at the moment when the rest of the world, after the Berlin Wall came down, moved away from socialism and, you know, there, there were more and more nations becoming independent. I, th I think the members of the UN went from something like 140 to 190 within about 10 years. But at that very same time, we started applying more socialist principles in South Africa. We got a uh, kind of a left-wing quasi-Marxist uh, government and everything became more centralized. And in fact, many people, including black academics like Gumede, claim that the ANC has the same kind of policy as the old um, Communist Party in the USSR, uh, i.e. one of democratic centralism, mm. where all decisions are made centrally by the party or by the Politburo, and then you, you cannot question those. And afterwards, people just have to fall in with their ideas. And and you, you get that impression in South Africa. There's a sort of a particular set of ideas and, and uh, certain conformism and you've got to adhere to that and you've got to conform to it so if you don't believe in the so-called nation building of the ANC mm -hmm. then people regard you as some kind of a dissident and even a, a threat to, to their society or, or their social projects, their, their social and political projects. Yeah. Um, in, in fact, while I was living in France, um, you know, the, the president was a socialist. His name was Francois Mitterrand. And he once said that, um, yeah, he famously said that nationalism means war. You know, le nationalisme c'est la guerre. Mm. In, in fact, it, it's it's false because many war, more wars have been fought for religious reasons or ideological reasons than, uh, you know, between nations or because the, the one was nationalistic and the other wasn't. Or so it, it's all over natural resources or energy. Or you know all kinds of other issues that have caused wars in the in the past. So I I don't think you can blame nationalism more than anything else for causing wars. And in fact, if you look at the list of countries, I mean they they they, they do these surveys every year to find the happiest countries in the world. And if you look at those countries, they're normally the Scandinavian countries or maybe places like the Netherlands, Northern Europe, Switzerland. Mm. And those countries are run on nationalistic principles because they're fairly homogenous. Mm. People mostly speak the same language. And or Japan. A, yeah, or Japan, for example. Yeah, yeah or Korea, you know. Mm. Those sorts of countries that are highly homogenous um, and that have common value systems. Um, and they are the happiest. 
even in the US, um, they've, they've done academic studies where they found that people trust each other more when the, in their state or in their city if it's homogenous and you know not ethnically diverse as soon as diversity rises then you have trust you know crashing to the ground and people become very suspicious of one another i mean it's like south africa you if, if somebody stops you if you're in your car and somebody tries to stop you next to the road waving you down you're not yeah. going to stop because you you immediately going to be suspicious of that person yeah and thinking what does he want from me is it a trap does he want to rob me um does he want to attack me <laughs> you know it, it, whereas if you go to some rural part of germany now or sweden or something and and the guy next to the road wants to stop you you you're going to wave you down you're going to stop immediately because mm. you're going to think i mean the chances that he'll be attacking me are so slim that i might as well stop and find out what what it's all about yeah yes i think botswana is a relative success in africa um you know for particular reasons also because they've got diamonds but it, yes it is i always call it call it a british pontistan because that's essentially what it is you know there, there are three countries in and around us, um, Botswana being one of them, and then Lesotho and Swaziland, that got their independence from Britain, and and but they're essentially Bontistans, and I mean Swaziland and Lesotho are tiny little countries with uh, that, that are actually not um, economically independent at all. But still, they enjoy self-determination and membership of the UN and whatever simply because Britain had given them their independence, whereas Britain seems to have been hostile to mm. the Boer republics and to Afrikaner independence over the last two centuries, ever since they came to southern Africa and started to get involved here. And I think that's the big difference. But in Africa, we've now got over 50 states. And, you know, more recently, we've had... Um, South Sudan becoming independent, uh, which was quite a major event, um, breaking away from Sudan itself. So I think it, in the future, there will probably be more states rather than fewer of them. And, and I think it's our only hope really in this country to to get some form of autonomy or independence because we've got no way to actually influence um, what the ANC does uh, yeah. or not do. You know, at the moment, they're not doing a lot of things like maintaining ESCOM or the water purification systems or the, the environment, um, the roads, and so on. And, you know, it's, it's not that hard to do. You see... I mean, when I lived in France for about seven years, we never had a single incident of, um, you know, there was never a single power cut, ever. I mean, something like that was just unheard sure. of. Whereas now in South Africa, it's, it's sort of part of life that sometimes the lights go down. I have the feeling that, that, that what you're saying is very reasonable um, and, and can be um, easily, easily 
quoted correctly? Do you, do you think that it's just not in line with the mainstream narrative? Yes, I think that's part of the problem. Um, but also, I think we've got other problems in South Africa, mm. in, in also in the sense that th there's no real intellectual life here or real intellectual debate like you mm. would find in Europe or even in the USA um, where people publish books about certain topics and they differ from one another and, and you know, the, the, there's a real debate. Over here, um, you know, we've gone from one form of conformism under the National Party to another under the ANC. Yeah. And, and they don't really... And then, therefore, the people who are part of this call it the dominant paradigm or the dominant ideology, they, they're not really interested in hearing about anything else at all. Yeah. And they simply caricature and stereotype everyone else that differs from the mainstream narrative, from their so-called narrative. And I think that is what happens. Um, because uh, sometimes when I come across some of these people that I don't even know or they've vaguely heard of me or something, you know, they, they would immediately start just insulting you w without having ever read anything that I'd written or listened to what I've mm. had to say. They would just insult you or, and, and call you stupid or, you know, you, you don't understand that we are now um, your liberated followers or citizens mm. in the ANC's People's Republic and we are perfectly happy with it. We're perfectly happy with that. That seems to be their, their attitude and you should not be allowed to criticize their marvelous, the marvelous life that they see for themselves here under the ANC. Whereas, of course, we know from the news every day that it's not so marvelous. Mm. And there are huge problems here and things that have not been properly thought out. In, in fact, this whole system has just been imposed on us without any thinking going into it. I think in a lot of other parts of the world that, where they've attained stability, for example, in Europe, in Western Europe, and even in Eastern Europe these days, they've put a lot of thinking into the political and social systems that they've got there. Yeah. I mean, a place like Belgium, where they've also had all, all kinds of conflicts uh, cultural and linguistic and conflicts. Um, they've got seven parliaments there. They've got a huge arsenal of laws and rules that regulate how people from the different communities in Belgium interact with one another. And it, it's complicated, but it works. And they've got a peaceful system there. And, I mean, some people are still unhappy, but at least, you know, it, it's, it's a functioning system. And, you know, looking at it from the outside, to us it looks like utopia. If only we, had, we could have something similar like that in South Africa, it, it would be absolutely brilliant. But to get there, you know, it, it would, it would um, need another revolution like the one we had in 1994, simply to get to something that other people consider normal a normal functioning society that's more or less fair to everyone. So would you agree if I said that uh, the country should be split into multiple smaller countries? 
Yeah, I think there should be a devolution of power, definitely. Mm. Um, because the the problem that you've got at the moment is that everything is just too centralized. And, and it's it leads straight to corruption and mismanagement. Mm. Uh, you've got all these huge municipalities that the ANC has created, you know, in the in the on the plot land, for example, you know, they, they would put eight or ten towns together and then the whole thing would just fall apart and eventually people wouldn't even have water. I mean I've got a friend who lives in a town in the free state and for the last two weeks uh, they haven't had water as a result of that. Because sure. it's just not manageable. And the same thing goes for Johannesburg. I mean, before we had Santon and Randburg and Midrand and Rudaput and, and so on, Krugersdorp and all these places, and now they've just put them all together into one huge, gigantic sort of Stalinist structure um, that's never going to work properly. We printed out the old South African flag and, and, you know, it was laminated in an A4 size. Mm. And then we went to a shopping center and just asked people at random what they thought of the flag and whether it should be banned. And that was just after the, the, the court, I think it was the high court in Johannesburg, had mm. declared it um, hate speech or the equality court. And, um, and I, you know, it was a very interesting exercise because it showed exactly how all of this hysteria around the old flag and the stem and so on it's it's all manipulated and artificial it you know it's the media and all these ideologues in the media who supposedly create um, a climate around something like the old flag but the people on the ground they are completely fine with it. They, they, they don't have that, um, that hostility. They don't have, feel that hostility or uh, being offended by the flag or anything like that. They see it as part of history and they, and they can mm -hmm. perfectly understand that some communities in South Africa might identify with it and others not. If you go to Europe or, I mean, I, I know France pretty well, and... I mean, there are s some places, especially in the alpine sort of areas, where they've certain regions and departments have their own flags, and they fly them in the restaurants and everywhere. And and those date to long ago when when it, that part of the country was perhaps a principality or it was ruled by some duke or other, and they've kept their flag and they're still proud of it, and nobody is um, offended by it or threatened by it or anything like that. But here in South Africa, we've just got these, you know, these social justice warriors, if you want to call them that, or these ideologues, and they've got an agenda that they are pushing, and they want to impose their ideas and their narrative onto us, and, and they don't like a dissent from that at all, and whether it's just your voicing your opinion or showing a flag or singing a song. You know, if you know a little bit more about what happened in the rest of the world, you recognize all these signs. For example, when you're talking about patriotic or nationalistic songs, in those Baltic states that became independent shortly after the Berlin Wall came down, they also banned their songs hmm. for a long time. When they were ruled by the Russians and by the USSR, 
uh, certain songs were also prohibited there. Sure. But it's, at a certain point, people just started singing those songs, and eventually they held hands, and about two million people eventually, all over the the Baltic states held hands one day and they sang those songs and that kind of broke the hold that the old Soviet Union had over them and they became independent afterwards. It was a non-violent act of resistance to those sorts of strictures and prohibitions on symbols and songs. And I think the, the same thing could happen in South Africa. I mean, if you see how popular somebody like Steve Hoffmayer is, um, he, yo, he's got that potential to actually get people to just stand up one day and wave the flag and sing this team. And what are they going to do about it? Are they going to put 300,000 people in prison? Are they going to put them in concentration camps? Or what? You know, we're, I think, you know, with social media these days, you know, say 30 or 40 years ago, you mm. could probably, in a country, in some dark corner, you know, um, intern 100,000 people and maybe kill half of them. Uh, and and the news wouldn't really filter out much. Mm. But now, with Twitter and Facebook and all of these social media, you can't really do those things anymore. So the ANC, they know, I mean, they, they still think like they are, commissars in the USSR in the 1930s or 40s but mm. the move, the world has moved on technology has moved on and they no longer have that power uh, to impose their will on us like, like they are trying to do I think I read somewhere that um, you know on Twitter for example every, every day the N word as they call it in the US is used 500,000 times. Sure. So Twitter has given up trying to regulate the N-word on Twitter because, uh, of course, a lot of American blacks use it to refer to themselves. I think when they say nigger with an A at the end, mm -hmm. then it's a positive. And if it's got an E-R at the end, it's, it's, it's considered a racist term, something like that. But... But everybody, I mean, it's used in songs and whatever, and even a lot of black people in South Africa listen to American rap songs where they use the word nigger. Yeah. So, um, but then we've now created this kind of taboo or, or the, the regime and mm. a few social justice warriors and the media especially, they've create, created a, a taboo around the K-word. Yeah. But, I mean, I've got the made the big Afrikaans dictionary here and, and I think it's got about nine or ten uh, pages, you know, in, in two or three columns uh, with, with various versions of the K-word. So you're never going to remove it from the history of the country, from, uh, you know, from people's minds or... No. And and I even once spoke to an author and she said that, that she doesn't feel a great need to use it, but to, to simply ban it, yeah, it, it kind of leaves a gap in her vocabulary. And I think under certain circumstances or in satire or whatever, I mean, I once, even as an experiment, um, we spoke about, I sent a book to the Human Rights Commission to ask them whether it should be banned because it contained the K-word. 
Um, but in fact, it's, it's, it was the same book that was banned under the old government. And for exactly that same reason, because one of the, under the old censorship act, if you created a division among communities in South Africa, that was also a reason to ban a book. Sure. And that, that literary novel, Machsfontein und Machsfontein, on page 32, um, it contains the K-word, but in a sort of a satirical way. And then it was cited as one of the reasons why it should be banned at the time. So I sent the book off to the Human Rights Commission, but that was about 10 years ago. And then they came back and said, no, but it's, it's kind of an artistic uh, expression and, uh, and it's not really part of our mandate to ban books or something like that. But I think in the current climate, possibly, um, yeah, it, it could be banned once more, simply in a knee-jerk sort of a reaction by just taking any form of, yeah, you know, you've, you've um, contravened our taboo, mm. so therefore we're going to ban you or we're going to imprison you, we're going to fine you, and so on. It's, it's also a way of, um, you know, it's a sort of a bullying tactic and it's a, it's a way of displaying their power because the more corrupt the whole system becomes and the more mm. ridiculous, it, it, it's losing legitimacy all the time. Mm. And, and for the court to actually ban the flag, or, you know, it was a display, it was a totalitarian display of arbitrary political power. Yeah, that was all it was. You know, it's like the Berlin Wall. I mean, they put up that wall to stop people from actually escaping from their own country. I mean, imagine that. Um, and for years and years, it was there. I, I saw it once before it came down. You know, with the people, you know, with the guards shooting, ready to shoot anyone who, who would cross the wall. It, it's the same mm. principle. Mm. You know, if you're gonna cross this barrier we're going to shoot you or we're going to imprison you or fine you or persecute you yeah you know, it, it, it's all very ridiculous um dan what what would you say then is your central selling point then your this if you could summarize a lot of the stuff that you envision uh for the future and for the future of afrikaners uh, because i know that yeah, well, i know we, i know your passion is there yeah yeah sure i mean we I think we're in, in a major predicament uh, at the moment. South Africa is, but also especially the uh, the Afrikaner people, because you know we we're not a big nation by any stretch of the imagination. Although we're uh, quite a lot bigger than many of the smaller European nations that are allowed to exist, such mm -hmm. as the Estonians or the Lithuanians or the. Um, you know the people in um, Lith yeah, in um, well, even South Tyrol. Exactly, yes, um, but also yeah. But I was thinking particularly of people in the Baltic states. Um, yeah, so but we are in a process now where we are being oppressed. Our language is being put under a lot of pressure. They banned Afrikaans at various universities and there's even pressure at Potschefström and the University of Stellenbosch and so on. There's affirmative action against us. 
and we're lo losing a lot of our best people to immigration, emigration rather. So we are really with our backs to the wall. And of course, there are farm attacks, um, you know, violence. Uh, it's, it's really, I think it's one of the worst periods in our, in our history that, that we are going through. So obviously, under conditions like that, you, you feel we have to save ourselves. We've got to do something to to get out of this, to make things more bearable, and to yeah, and and perhaps even to um, to react to what our enemies are doing against us. Because I think at a certain level, the ANC regime, uh, they've said it many times, uh, they do see us as the enemy. And, and for them, 1994 was a great victory. It wasn't uh, a negotiated settlement. They see it in their rhetoric and so on as a, as a victory over us, that they've conquered us and that mm. they now can do what they like. They can confiscate our assets and they, they can treat us like a conquered people. And that really grates me, you know, to the notion that, you know, you belong now to to a conquered group and you've got to kowtow to your new masters, you've got to follow their rules, you've got to speak their language and also um, not, not only their language in, in the sense of a natural language but also in a metaphorical sense that you've got to kind of recite their terms and their ideology. You have to... Um, you know, follow their ideas, make them your own. You've got to actually convert to their um, their way of thinking. A bit like, you know, there was a French novel about two or three years ago by a guy called Michel Welbeck where France becomes a Muslim country and within 24 hours, all of the academics convert to Islam in order sure. to keep, keep their jobs. And, I mean, it, it, it's funny and it's kind of a satire, but... I think in South Africa, most of the people at the universities have actually converted to the ANC religion, religion you know, if you could call mm. it that. They now, whether it's at Potchefstroom or Pretoria or Stellenbosch or wherever, they repeat after their new masters um, all the slogans, all the ideas, uh, you know, the entire ideology, whether it's affirmative action or black economic empowerment or racism or whiteness. There's another term for you, yeah, whiteness. Ridiculous. Whiteness studies. And no, it's that. ridiculous. Yeah, they are towing the line, you know. It, it's, uh, yeah, and it's that that brings, I mean, I, I'm so, sort of in, I feel, put it in Afrikaans, because an opstandart, I feel that I am, you know, rising up against that or I'm rebelling against that. It's, mm. it's natural for me to rebel against something like that, against that level of conformism and, and actual stupidity. It's, it's because it's just, you know, it lobotomizes you. You, you. You're just excluding 90% of uh, ideas from your field of vision and from mm. your mind simply in order to please your new masters and these people who have been put into power over you. And, and of course, we can talk a lot. I mean, it would 
could talk for hours as to exactly how it happened that this bunch of crooks and um, ideologues came to take over our country. It's, it's, it's one of those craziest things that's happened in the 20th century, I think. Asking, do you think Afrikaners are already politically conquered and does the Afrikaner have a future without violence? You know, it depends. Well, I, I think we have been politically conquered for sure. Um, I think we were conquered through terrorism and propaganda. And in fact, I was reading the other day some article somewhere. Um, oh yes, it, it was. I was in the Netherlands about a year ago, and then I met a couple of politicians there, and one of them gave me a book. Um, Oh, a couple of books uh, in Dutch and um, and in the one article which was written by an academic and, a, and in fact a jurist he's a legal academic in it he writes somewhere that terrorism works and in fact South Africa is a prime example that terrorism has worked in South Africa through terrorism the ANC conquered our country they conquered us and they are now oppressing us, and they they con you know they, they did it through violence, through terrorism and propaganda, and they were very good at that at the propaganda. I think they are still very good at propaganda, and they were trained in that, and they've got a knack for it. I think, um, so that's part of our problem, and and we're not very good at propaganda at all. I mean, Afrikaners. They, they want to be honest and earnest and sincere and they're, they're not going to lie to make the other side look bad, whereas the other side doesn't have any qualms about making us look bad by, through lying or exaggeration or hyperbole. Uh, you know, that's what they're using all the time against us. Then the question depends what you... Okay, we're already experiencing a lot of violence. That, that, that's the irony that... Mm. The peace is now more violent than the war. And, and because, in fact, at the time when the ANC was officially at war with South Africa, we had a lot less violence than now. So, so how does that, how does one have to, how does one understand that? That the peace is more violent than the, um, you know, than the actual war or the conflict itself. Um, so we, yeah, we've got to decide um, how to deal with it. And I think a lot of people are defending themselves. It seems to me that some of these farm attacks and so on, the casualty rate is going down a little bit because people are starting to defend themselves. And I think that's necessary. And we have to defend ourselves. You know, we're under attack and we've got to go on to the defense. And we've some, we sometimes have to use violence ourselves, I think, in a legal way preferably <laughs> as far as you can um you're saying we have a lot of nationalism in spirit but we are yet to learn how to exercise it we need to show the world we want independence by practicing it every boer must wave their flag at shops houses etc yeah i tend to agree with that in fact you know i i once bought a second-hand book a little book and I've lost it somewhere, but it should still be here somewhere. I don't know. But it was written by somebody who's, who, was, who had quite a liberal 
reputation, whose name was Jan Rabi, an author, an Afrikaans author, although he was very, um, he was a staunch champion of the Afrikaans language. In fact, he lived in Paris for a while and there he met a, a Scottish woman, her name was Marjorie Wallace, and but they spoke Afrikaans at home and she had to learn Afrikaans and, um, you know, being a Scots woman, she's not that probably that attached to English either. I mean, the Scots are not English. But she was the only person I ever came across who spoke Afrikaans with the Scots accent. <laughs> but he, in that book of his, he wrote that the Afrikaner, our problem is not nationalism in Afrikaans, but too little nationalism. And that struck me as quite a statement to make for him, somebody like him, who in, in other ways was quite a liberal person. And when he died, I mean, they, 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 they kind of created this whole politically correct aura around him and that he was anti-apartheid and all of that. But in fact, I mean, I, I met him personally quite a few times and um, and I, I think he meant it when he said that. So I, I tend to agree with that, that we're too shy, we're too, um, you know, I think there's a Frank Zappa record where he says we're too adagio. <laughs> Know, we, sure. It must be more allegro kind of thing and and um yeah and say things more openly and show show who we are more openly. Like like the Catalan the Catalans. I mean there are a million Catalans who marched in a protest in Barcelona. You know, we've got to start doing things like that. Or just yeah, not be shy of showing who we are. One of the comments was asking, apart from Trump, why do you think the international community doesn't speak out against the ANC policies? Well, I think it's white guilt. You, you know, the Europeans suffer from it mm. even more than we do. And therefore, I mean, they, they, they'll never allow the, this level of anarchy in Europe um, that we've got here, but when they come here, when the European diplomats come to South Africa and the journalists and so on, you know, it's as if they're walking on eggs or something and they are just so careful and they don't want to offend Africans mm. and, uh, you know, for fear of th that they would be accused of colonialism and racism and the whole, um, you know, the the whole litany of, of terms um, used against uh, white people and Westerners generally. So I think that that's one of the major reasons why they don't speak out. But in private, I think many do acknowledge that there is a huge problem here. But it's up to us to publicize it more and to get more people to say it openly also in Europe and in the USA. But, but I must say, you know, on the right in Europe, a lot of people have taken up the cause of white South Africans generally and the crime and the violence, and the farm murders and so on in South Africa. And they do, even, uh, for example, in the Dutch parliament, they have debated it and they have actually tabled motions about that. Mm. And they've actually accepted some of those motions. For example, the one about... Um, expropriation without 
um, compensation. They have actually, in by a majority vote in the, the part in, in the Parliament of the Netherlands, or the, the Twitter Kamer as they call it, they have actually pronounced themselves against that. So th- that for me was quite a breakthrough. And I, and I think if we just, and in Eastern Europe, we could get all the parliaments to do that. I mean, they would, at the drop of a hat, um, pass a resolution like that. So, and, and that's where I also blame our political parties and our opposition parties, because they're not in doing enough to internationalize uh, these issues. Yeah. I mean, the, the ANC did it very well and the Communist Party before, in order to obtain power in South Africa, they, they made South Africa an international issue, mm. and we must do the same. Now, it's now our turn to, to do that. 50 mm. years from now, where do you see Afrikaners? Uh, ge- geographically, culturally, so on. Yeah, it's quite a difficult one, but I would say that you know, ultimately we are going to come together and I think we, we will still occupy quite a dominant position in this part of the world and we'll we'll have become a lot wealthier and more powerful than we are at the moment. I, I think this is really just a very low point in our history and you see if you see what we attained in the nineteen sixties, um, you know, the organizations and the industries that we've built in South Africa, we, we can do it again. And we have to do it again. Um, well, I mean, and, and there's a lot of simple, and, and I think we are now more in sync with, uh, with Europe. And mm. we've got a lot of friends in Europe. We've got a lot of supporters in Europe. And the ANC is not powerful enough to stand against any Europe, even the smallest European country. I mean, even Mm. European country with 10,000, 10 million people or 15 million people will completely walk over the ANC. Um, you know, they're diplomats and they I mean, I'm not even talking about militarily. I mean, a tiny country could, could invade South Africa and take it over tomorrow because we haven't got an army to speak of because the ANC is just so hopeless. Um, so, yeah, we, we've got a lot of sympathy there and, and we're in sync with how the Europeans think and with their problems because they now have similar problems to what we've got. Mm. And so it, it's very exciting this time because I think we are, all of us are engaged in thought experiments, as you were, you yeah. were saying, and, and people are getting more outspoken and they are thinking very hard uh, about these problems confronting us. And, and that's what, what's exciting. And, and that motivates me as well. So even if people hear, you know, our mainstream media ignore me or kind of try and stereotype me and so on, I know that there's a great big audience out there mm. who are interested in hearing what we have to say. Um, thanks so much for your time, Dan. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.